What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Alert with Dan and Dean. Last episode, we talked about logical fallacies, which was kind of fun. Some some fun examples in there. And um, this week, we're talking about the Berlin patient, which I think a lot of people have heard the name of, but maybe don't know the whole story. Uh, but it's basically one of the, I would say, more famous uh, case studies in modern medicine do you think that's a a fair uh, label to put on that that's fair yeah Uh, I I think especially with the um, hot topic of CRISPR and gene editing and whatnot this sort of sets the foundation for why those types of technologies um, are promising right it it borrows from those technologies or vice versa but it sort of was uh, happened upon in a different way Uh, but yeah we'll see like there's some future implications for kind of what what this patient and sort of this case study really tells us, but it's not actually one patient, uh, which I honestly didn't know before I started uh, researching this. It's really, you could describe it as a a collection of patients that sort of fit a similar uh, clinical pattern. So for a little bit of background, and we're going to talk more about the, the actual case study, I think more toward the end. But the original Berlin patient was uh, and is an unknown anonymous person uh, who was, as I understand it, treated in Berlin, which is why uh, that's what they're called. Back in, I think, 1998, right? It was like the late 90s. And the reason that this patient was so interesting to researchers and clinicians was that they were described as exhibiting prolonged suppression of HIV after their HIV treatment was actually stopped. So they were considered to be kind of functionally cured of HIV for all intents and purposes. There was a second Berlin patient, and this is the one that I think comes to mind. Like, if you Google Berlin patient, this is kind of who will come up. It's actually pretty hard, understandably, to find out information about that anonymous person or even their case study. So the second Berlin patient um, is named Timothy Ray Brown, and he actually made his identity public. He decided, like, he was going to you know, let the world know who he was. That was in, I think, 2008. Uh, is that what you saw too? Maybe 2007, 2008. And then about a decade later, a little more than a decade later at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, which really rolls off the tongue, a third patient came forward, having been also apparently functionally cured of HIV. They were called the London patient. And I'm sure you can figure out why they were called the London patient. Uh, and that person's name uh, was Adam Castilejo. And that was in like March of 2020. So We're really focusing, I think, on that second patient, Timothy Ray Brown. But the key with all these patients is that they are few of many people that have been infected with HIV uh, who have been deemed functionally cured, able to sustain prolonged suppression of the virus, which is, for HIV, kind of a big deal. Or really for any virus that's you know, like HIV, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess just for my own sanity, I feel like I have to say this, uh, the reason that we use the term Berlin patient, uh, and the London patient is strictly for PHI, right? Scientists can't publish the name of their patients. That's mm-hmm. horribly illegal like, globally. So they, they can't write a paper and say, you know, John Smith is blah, 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 blah. So they just sort right. of came up with this term, you know, the patient that was treated in Berlin, the Berlin patient. And then because the second patient, because uh, Timothy Ray Brown was also treated in Berlin, he was also called 
the Berlin patient. Yeah. Um, and it was his advocacy um, for this treatment um, where he brought his own name forward. He unanonymized himself uh, because it was illegal for anyone else to do so. And, you know, obviously it's it's medical information. It's very private, completely understand. Uh, well, there's no justification needed for why someone would want to keep it private, but he decided to, to make it public. And you can actually watch some, you know, interviews. You could imagine that this was sort of a big deal when he made his identity known. So you can see various news networks around the world kind of doing segments on him and interviewing him. And it's it's really interesting. I definitely encourage people to go to go check that out. So were you going to add something? Uh, no, I, I was going <clears> to <throat> say before we really get too much into uh, in, into him, into his story, I think it probably behooves our audience to uh, maybe explain a little bit of what HIV is and how that can lead to AIDS and what these entities are. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh-huh. Well, how about I'll start off because I think you probably have more info here, so maybe you can uh, you can fill in the gaps. So, HIV is uh, stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus, and there are really two, I guess, subtypes of the HIV virus. I used um, strain in a previous uh, episode, and I guess that was incorrect, but I don't know that these are clades, so I'm going to call them subtypes, right? Two, two different versions, if you will. Uh, and they are in the lentivirus family, which is actually a subgroup of retroviruses. Retroviruses are really interesting because they are integrating viruses. So they actually insert a DNA copy of their RNA genome. I was always taught you could remember retrovirus are RNA, right? They have an RNA genome. And so they actually create a DNA copy of that genome or some portion of it, and they inject it into the DNA of the host cell, and it actually integrates there. So that when that cell replicates, so too does the virus in that cell. And that's sort of part of how the virus can attach itself to an organism or to a host, right? Um, And the key with HIV is that if it's left unchecked, it can cause acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or AIDS, which I think is the one that, you know, it's usually HIV AIDS that's kind of talked about as a package deal. But HIV is really the, the virus that sort of triggers that cascade of events over time if left unchecked. And that can happen at different speeds in different patients. um, But if it's left unchecked, the survival rate for patients is usually estimated to be around nine to 11 years. So it can be you know, pretty detrimental to someone's health. And I don't know if you have anything else to add on the, uh, the, the retrovirus front or, or anything to Yeah, I that. mean, I can talk about um, the actual biological mechanisms in a bit, but maybe a little bit of history first. So AIDS uh, was, was first clinically observed in the U.S. in 1981. And at first, the CDC didn't have have a term for it. So they typically referred to what we now call AIDS as just the diseases that sort of manifested their symptoms, uh, primarily Kaposi's sarcoma, because there was a group of patients that had similar symptoms that all developed a relatively rare kind of, of cancer um, called Kaposi's sarcoma. So the, the first name that they sort of tossed out there was Kaposi's sarcoma and opportunistic infections, um, which is uh, not a great name for anything, really. And that sarcoma had been described previously. Yes. Kaposi it wasn't sarcoma like they, is okay. an established entity. Yes, before um, this, we great. could do a whole segment on that if you want. It's actually unbelievably interesting. I, well, um, I do believe it. Well, there you go. Uh, so that was 1981, and then when the media got a hold of, of of this symptom and the population that it tended to affect, they 
sort of coined the term GRID, which stood for gay-related immune deficiency. Um, and that was a, a, a very inaccurate way to describe this. So after you know the uh, WHO and CDC and NIH all, all really decided that um, this was not isolated to the gay community, it was realized that the term GRID was not just misleading, it was flat out incorrect. Um, so they introduced AIDS, uh, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, um, at a meeting in July 1982. So that's 1982. And we know what the outcome of AIDS is. But what causes it? Um, so to figure out the cause, uh, there were a couple different simultaneous efforts. Uh, in 1983, so this is the next year, Luc Montagier, uh, his team at the Pasteur Institute in Paris discovered HIV-1. And I say HIV-1 because you mentioned before there are two of these main subtypes or two mm -hmm. different species. Um, HIV-2 is way less common, way less infectious. So when we talk about HIV, 99% of the time we're talking about HIV-1. But this, this um, Parisian group sort of concluded that this virus that they isolated was relevant in the situation, but they did not make the leap that it actually caused AIDS. Um, and they named their virus uh, after one of the predominant symptoms that it caused. Uh, oh boy, this is a tough word. Um, lymphadenopathy associated virus, I think is how you say that, or LAV. Um, most viruses just go by their abbreviations, so I'm just calling it LAV. And then the next year, uh, Robert Gallo's team at the uh, NCI in Maryland, they isolated the same virus from a bigger group of patients and sort of decided that, again, we're going to say that this is the virus, but we're going to go the next step and say this is actually what is causing AIDS. So they were able to make that leap, and they named this isolated virus uh, Human T-Cell Leukemia Virus Type 3, or HTLV-3. LAV and HTLV-3 are the same virus, so they okay. just named the same thing two different ways in relatively quick succession. And then a third team out at uh, University of California in, uh, in San Francisco, Jay Levy and his team essentially, se or not sequenced, they, they isolated the same virus. Um, this was actually a little bit before Gallo's group, so I think it was still in... Like it was December 1983, I believe. Um, and they named their virus the AIDS-associated retrovirus, or ARV. Um, and then uh, I, it actually took a couple years. I think it was like 1985, 1986. A group of scientists kind of got together and said, these three viruses, LAV, HTLV3, and ARV, they're all the same thing. So right. let's be consistent. Let's call them HIV. HIV um, which... I, I guess is really, they called it HIV-1 to be specific, mm -hmm. um, but there was sort of a battle over who discovered it. Um, and in 2008, the French group um, was actually awarded the Nobel Prize um, for the isolation and characterization of HIV-1. So oh, they really? were actually credited with the discovery because they were truly the first to do it. But as you said, there are two types, HIV-1, HIV-2. HIV-1 is way more virulent, way more infective. Mm -hmm. um, it's the cause of way more infections worldwide. I, I, from what I could glean, and there isn't a whole lot of information that I could see on HIV-2, um, but the lower um, infectivity of HIV-2 sort of 
drives the idea that people that are exposed to it are infected less often. So it's exposure to HIV-2 is not the same thing as exposure to HIV-1. Um, and because of this uh, sort of incapacity for transmission, especially relative to HIV-1, it, it's largely confined just to Western Africa. Oh, really? Um, so it really is a geographic containment which I, I, I found a little bit interesting. But I, I'm also going to just quickly say here, I know he got a really bad rep when it, it came to Trump's administration, but Anthony Fauci is, this is going to be my shameless plug for him. He is one of the most awarded scientists of all time. One of the most prolific public, pub, public publicators? One who publishes. Publishers? Publishers. But he's not publishing. He's writing it. Authors. He'd be an author. Sure. Uh, one, <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> one of the most prolific authors in scientific journals. He's actually one of the most cited authors of all time. He, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's the chief ad medical advisor to the United States president. He is the man when it comes to healthcare. And he built almost all of his reputation off of work that he did with HIV. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so most of the awards that he was given... Um, were actually specific, or I guess not specific to, but because of his influence with HIV. Um, and th this is going back, you know, I got in the, the 80s. I suppose it was the 80s. One of the big activists, uh, the AIDS activist, uh, Larry Kramer, was vocal against Fauci. And he really? you know, attacked him all the time. Incompetent idiot, pill-pushing tool of the medical establishment. He was like, Kramer hated Fauci. Because Fauci was sort of at the spearhead of treatments, and yeah. there simply wasn't anything. Um, and because of the whole stigma about HIV and AIDS, everything really got blown out of proportion. Hmm. In my opinion, again, not with the same stigma, but sort of in the same vein as what happened with COVID. Yeah. But even though he was, you know, Fauci was really just admonished for how he initially dealt with the AIDS epidemic... Eventually, AIDS activists like Kramer came to realize and acknowledge him for how truly uh, impressive of a scientist he was. And Kramer actually came out and said that Fauci, despite all of this, and I quote, is the only true great hero amongst all of the government officials during that AIDS crisis. Jeez. Um, so Fauci is... So he had some pretty thick skin when he was getting blasted. Oh, over yeah. <laughs> and at, at the end of the day, Fauci was right. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to make this political no, no. Or, or make this about COVID. But when people that have a really good track record in a particular field, like infectious diseases, yeah. they come out and say something on the global scale. They, they're good at their job. You I tend to give them the benefit. At some level, yeah. if there's someone you can trust about it, it's probably him. But anyway, that was just a plug to say that a lot of the information that we know about HIV, specifically about the treatment of HIV, we should credit to Fauci. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And I also thought it was interesting when you were talking about the Nobel Prize discussion because there's a very similar or, or was a very similar debate over uh, CRISPR and kind of who should really get the credit? Is it the people who kind of identified the mechanism in nature? Is it the people who were able to... Um, formalize a process to use it um and i think i mean we should probably do an episode because those can't be the only examples of 
where there's really a lot of debate, like valid debate over who should sort of be credited. I think one of the other big ones that comes to mind is the BRCA gene. Oh, geez. Yeah. Right? Is it the Berkeley College? Or, or, sorry, I'm going to have to. We'll do a segment on this. We should. <laughs> so, so Berkeley, California, or there was a, another acronym, or, or breast cancer. That's what it was, obviously. Uh, there were two groups. Oh, One right. was in Berkeley, another not at Berkeley at the same time. One said it's the breast cancer gene, BRCA. The other said it's Berkeley, you know, California, BRCA. Same acronym, totally different reasons, same gene. Anyway, let's go. It would be interesting to do a segment on all that, though. And we even talked about doing an episode on how the Nobel Prize process even works, which I think would be kind of interesting. But anyway, I think your summary is is much appreciated. And yeah, in in a relatively short amount of time, uh, HIV and AIDS have have been sort of a pretty serious public health threat. Um, To date, it's estimated that about 32 million people have died. Uh, from HIV and AIDS, and that's, you know, again, all around the world. It's in developing countries, it's in uh, developed countries, and it's, again, because of, well, we'll talk in a minute about kind of why it's so challenging to treat, uh, but I think it's worth talking about how HIV, like what the mechanism of action is here, um, because I think that's kind of relevant for some of that treatment. So uh, HIV kind of, you know, infects the immune cells, specifically it can infect uh, helper T cells. I think that's basically the, the most common mechanism. And helper T cells are also called CD4 positive T cells because they have a CD4 uh, receptor, right? Basically on their on their surface. Right. And for people that are not you know, huge biology nerds, these are your white blood cells. These are the things that are fighting off infections. Whereas like your memory B cells are right. what, what help you what helps your immune system recognize foreign invaders and they right. say oh this is i don't know the flu hey t cells right. come here and go get that right and there are uh two different two different main i guess lineages of t cells there's the cd4 positive helper t cells and then there are cd8 positive cytotoxic uh t cells and the way that i understand it is that the cd4 positive ones help kind of patrol and facilitate immune response whereas the cd8 positives are more involved in like the direct you know targeting and killing of foreign agents basically right so they work together and yeah they work with your b cells and the immune system is a whole you know crazy complex world and we're not going to get into too much detail but hiv essentially can infect those cd4 positive helper t cells and that infection often leads to lower levels of CD4 positive T cells. And so in some cases, that's even due to kind of friendly fire. It's even due to killing of that of those infected cells by the CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells that can you know maybe tell something is wrong early on in the infection. And cell-mediated immunity is, is relevant here. That's an immune response uh, without antibodies. So basically, the cells can kind of take care of it themselves, right? Uh, and so if the CD4 positive T cells dip too low, that immunity is kind of lost. And that basically lets what uh, you, you talked about opportunistic infections before, um, those types of infections can kind of take hold. It sort of leaves the door wide open and lets a lot of things get out of control. That's my uh, high level understanding of kind of how it works. But I don't know, do you have any more info on on how it actually infects the cells or like what proteins are involved. Yeah, well, I, I heard you say before and you were, you were begging me to describe the uh, the 
you know, biochemical mechanisms. Of I wasn't this, so. begging. It was like I was <laughs> encouraging. So I, let's take a little bit of a step back and talk about the structure of HIV at a very high level. Um, HIV is uh, a, a viral particle. It's a sphere, more or less, um, with a diameter that's about, I don't know, 100,000, maybe a little bit more times smaller than a red blood cell, right? It's a virus. It's tiny. Inside of its enveloping container, right, which is basically its own plasma membrane, similar to how our cells are, um, inside of this uh, envelope is a capsid, which sort of houses the RNA and the viral proteins. Um, the outer membrane, that, that envelope, has this envelope glycoprotein complex, which if you try to visualize it, kind of looks like an Eiffel Tower. Um, it's got this you know, chunk at the top and these three long legs that come down. And those three long legs are made of three distinct uh, glycoprotein 41 molecules. Um, and the cap is this uh, glycoprotein 120. I actually thought it was really interesting. There's one gene um, in the viral genome called ENV for envelope that actually encodes both of them. It encodes a protein GP160. And then the virus itself has a, uh, a, a protease that cuts 160 into 120 and 41. So it has one oh, gene cool. that it transcribes and then chops it in half to make two totally different proteins from one. It, it was fascinating. Does that happen often? Like At in, least in, in HIV nature? it does. Um, I don't know. That's it, cool. It's a really, really interesting way to uh, sort of compact your coding sequence. Yeah, it um, sounds like you're like compressing right it. The, the whole i you know the old central dogma of one gene one protein that we disproved years ago and we still teach we um, you and i oh uh, yeah exactly. specifically uh, yeah. <laughs> i think this is a a great explanation for how that is definitely not even close oh, that's to really how biology cool. works but anyway you have this shell right this membrane with uh this eiffel tower thing sticking on top uh, and there's a whole bunch of these little Eiffel Towers. These are like the receptors. Um, so if you think of your like typical viral protein, it's a sphere and it's got a bunch of spikes on it. These are the spikes. So in, in summary, the HIV virus enters CD4 T cells by adsorption of the glycoproteins on its surface to receptors on the target cell, right? And then that is followed by a complete enveloping within the target cell membrane and the release of the HIV capsid inside of the cell. So let's break that down for a second. The, the first thing that really happens uh, is all inside of the HIV virus. It encodes um, and transcribes that ENV gene, GP160, um, and then cuts GP160 into GP120 and GP41. So now there are two of these proteins, right? And those proteins are going to go onto the cell membrane or the, the not cell, the viral membrane, rather. It's really not a cell. And it's going to make these spike proteins. GP120 is the really important part of this. Uh, there's an interaction between GP120 and the glycoproteins that are on the CD4 T cells. Uh, when they start interacting, when they get close enough and they do actually interact, there's a, a, a conformational change in what GP120 starts to look at and it exposes these binding sites on the viral GP120 for CD4 co-receptors. And this allows for this secondary interaction so that not only is HIV sort of 
binding you know GP its GP120 to CD4's glycoprotein, but it needs another thing to be a co-receptor. That other thing on CD4 is either CCR5 or CXCR4, these mm-hmm. two other human genes. Um, and CCR5 will play into the story a little bit more, so let's keep it relative to that gene. CCR5 uh, is when everything is functioning properly, this co-receptor. So these extra little protrusions on GP120 then bind to CCR5, and now it has like a double locking mechanism. And it's it's like a perfect fit. Like exactly. It's, it's truly right. designed to fit there, basically. And now that it's locked, uh, GP41, those, um, those, those three almost legs to the Eiffel Tower, they sort of extend, and they push into the CD4 T-cell's cell membrane, and they sort of split it. And when it splits, GP41 sort of undergoes this other really weird conformational change. It folds itself in half. It becomes, a, you know, these coiled-coiled domains. It, it, it gets a little funky. But this whole process pulls down the, the viral membrane and pulls up the cellular, cellular membrane and fuses them together. So you almost think of it as... It's really hard to show without a visual, but... This little stick that is protruding into a cell, splitting open the membrane, and then fusing the membranes together. And as they fuse together, everything that is inside of the cell is also now inside of the virus, and everything that was inside of the virus is now inside of the cell. So that capsid, now that it is inside of a cell, then sort of releases all of its stuff. Right, and the mm-hmm. the RNA gets converted into double-stranded DNA. It integrates into the genome, and then holy crap, a virus has actually integrated its DNA into the cell, which is absolutely fascinating. To it's me. crazy. I mean, it's such a deliberate mechanism, or I mean, that's kind of how it seems, right? Right. It, it seems like it's, it, it's there's no other purpose other right. than to to do exactly this. And, and, it's an example crazy. of how evolution is, I guess, random, but boy, does it seem intelligent. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So the, the, where, the, where I'm going with this whole story and why I went into that detail is because that CCR5 gene, that co-receptor to the um, CD4 T-cell glycoproteins, is extremely important and plays a vital role in how HIV actually binds the cells. Um, there are certain situations where there's a mutation on the CCR5 gene. It's a deletion of 32 amino acids... Um, and it means that CCR5 is a little bit too short. So chemically, like, you know, on, on the molecular level, when HIV virus comes in and binds a CD4 T cell with, you know, GP120 binding to the CD4 glycoproteins, it needs that co-receptor. It's going to try and expose those co-receptor sites for CCR5, but CCR5 is too short. It can't actually reach yeah. them. And because it can't reach them, it cannot fully bind, and therefore uh, GP41 cannot actually break into the cell membrane, and HIV can never actually enter a cell. So this particular mutation, this Delta 32 mutation on CCR5, if you harbor this mutation, you can have HIV viral particles inside of you, Mm -hmm. but they cannot get into your cells. So it's this natural immunity to the HIV virus. Yeah, it's almost like the, uh, to, to use uh, an analogy, it's like that initial binding between the HIV viral uh, plasma membrane, I guess, and the cell. It's kind of like putting a key into a deadbolt lock, and then the CCR5 is like turning the, the doorknob. 
right? Like you kind of need to do both to open the door. So if that doorknob is not there, you can unlock the door all you want, but you can't actually get it open. So yeah, that, and I mean, 32 amino acids is pretty small. Like that's, I mean, in cellular terms, I guess it's like extremely different in terms of right. Length, so but the, the CCR genes that I mentioned, the other one that CXC are, yeah, um, how big so are, the, are these are uh, chemokine receptors and chemokines are uh, proteins that are involved in um, how different immune cells recognize signal. They're basically chemical signals sort of encouraging motility of these cells to certain areas. So these receptors are obviously um, receiving the chemokine signals. So mm -hmm. when, when a cell receives this signal, then other, well, I guess, depending on what the signal is, but then other T cells will come over to that cell or then the uh, CD8 T cells will come over. There, there's a whole uh, right. immune cascade that happens. But the, the idea is that these uh, chemokine receptors, uh, the CC ones, actually have two cysteines um, at the very beginning of the protein, which is why they're called CC, um, and the R would be a receptor. So this is CC receptor 5, and the other one was CXCR4, um, which is sort of describing that it's not two sequential cysteines, it's cysteine and then something else, right. and then cysteine. So that's just the naming convention for uh, these, these family of, uh, of chemokines. But what I found particularly interesting was that the number of these mutations that you have matters, right? So high school biology, right? You have a mom, you have a dad, you get half your mom's DNA, half your dad's DNA mm -hmm. generally, right? So you have two copies of every gene, one from mom, one from dad, right? right? These different versions of a gene are called alleles, right? And usually the alleles are not different enough that the... the whatever it's coding for, whatever you know, DNA it's coding for, um, still makes a functional protein, albeit with very, very slight differences. When the two alleles are identical, we call them homozygous. They are the same. When they are different, regardless of how different, then we call them heterozygous. If a person is heterozygous for the CCR5 Del21, or uh, sorry, Del21, Del32, um, then that person has increased resilience to contracting HIV. But if that patient is homozygous, meaning that all of their cells do have this mutation in CCR5, mm -hmm. um, then that patient is entirely resilient to this mechanism of getting HIV1. There are other much more rare mechanisms that a person can contract it, but for all intents and purposes, if you are a homozygous carrier of the uh, Delta 32 mutation on CCR5, you have this innate immunity to the HIV virus. Question for you. Do you have any clue how common that mutation is? Well, I found out that it was more common than I thought it would be, uh, at least in certain parts of the world. So I think I saw in some places it's actually as high as 16% of the population, I think in certain European countries, uh, specifically like Western European countries, I think, right? I I, I, I saw um, the 16% in uh, like Norway. I don't know oh, that I'd right. call that Western, yep. but yeah, <laughs> I mean, 16% was right on the nose. Which um, is pretty high. I was shocked by that. So w there are two different numbers that we 
talk about when, when we're talking about DNA like this. Um, the allele count, so how in, in the global population or in any given population, how often when you look at all of the genes that are in, in the you know, gene pool, what percentage of those have this mutation? And then the other number we care about is how many patients harbor this mutation on both of their alleles? So the question right. is, how common is this allele and how many patients are homozygous for this allele? Uh, there's this study um, that was published in uh, Human Immunology, I believe, in 2017 by a German group that looked at 87 countries and they did next generation sequencing on a little over 1.3 million patients to sort of answer the question of how often do we see these things? I don't know if you saw this article or read it somewhere else, but mm -hmm. when you look at the allele frequency of CCR5 Delta 32, we can see it at upwards of 16.4% in Norwegian samples. And sometimes we see it at 0% in yeah. like Ethiopia. The highest homozygous genotype, so uh, patients where both of their alleles are mutant like this, you know, with this advantage, um, mutations are not always bad. The highest frequency was actually found in the Faroe Islands, 2.3%. But there were 27 countries that were mostly in Africa, Asia, South America, where zero people carried this genotype. So if we look at this entire study and sort of summarize it, we're looking at like a little over half a percent globally for uh, homozygous carriers of this mutation and about you know six, almost 7% of the total global alleles are of this mutation. So uh, call it half a percent of patients just simply can't get HIV. Yeah, so definitely lower than 16%, but definitely not zero. And they kind of figured this out because over time, well, they, they sort of started to investigate this because there were plenty of patients when doing kind of, uh, you know, public health studies that absolutely had been exposed to HIV and for some reason just did not develop an infection. I think it was actually in the U.S. where that was first sort of noticed. Do you have... Have you heard of Crohn's disease? I have. Totally unrelated, but watch this. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the guy that discovered Crohn's um, had a son. His name was Stephen. Stephen um, was a gay man and in the... 1980s, early 1990s, mm -hmm. he became the first person that was ever discovered to be completely resistant to HIV in any test that was possibly offered. Wow. Um, he was sort of crowned in a, uh, a, a British uh, journal called The, the Independent um, as the man who can't catch AIDS. And he has... Stories, documentaries, books, newspapers, interviews, he, he's, he's got the works. So the idea is that he was sexually active, and even though his partners were contracting, and unfortunately many of them ended up dying of AIDS, he never got it. So he actually approached some, uh, some physicians, some researchers, and sort of posited the idea of, hey, what the heck, how come I'm not getting this? Right. I must have something inside of me that is stopping me from getting this because I really should have had it by now. Yeah. Um, and there was a, I believe he was an American researcher, Bill Paxton, who was with uh, the AIDS Research Center in New York, who was kind Not of... Not the actor. 
Oh, correct. No, not the actor. <laughs> Just so we're clear. Um, who, who was following Crone's uh, train of thought and decided to design some experiments. And one of the experiments involved uh, sort of isolating Crone's T-cells um, and trying to infect them with HIV. And Paxton just simply couldn't do it. He, he could not figure out a way to infect Crohn's CD4 cells. So the, the idea that, you know, his cells are different, they're important, they have some kind of natural immunity really gave rise to, well, let's sequence it. Let's figure out, you know, what mutations do you have or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that he is a homozygous carrier of CCR5 Delta 32. Wow. I mean, it's good that he pursued some kind of further investigation there and said, you know, hey, let's let's figure out if there's something we can learn from why I'm not, you know, getting it. Because getting it historically, uh, but even today, it's just really hard to treat. And basically the most straightforward way to actually beating a retroviral infection is to sort of kill the infected cells before they can release enough virus to infect at least one more cell. It sounds kind of obvious, but you know, sort of needs to be said. And it's really challenging to do because how do you figure out that these cells are infected? And even if you do, how do you tag them? How do you target them? It's really challenging. Um, so what's usually uh, used is antiretroviral therapy or ART. And usually it's used as part of a drug combo called highly active antiretroviral therapy or HAART. Uh, the Treatment usually works to actually suppress the replication of HIV, and that reduces the chances of transmission. So in general, it can improve your quality of life, but it's still not a way to cure it. It can also prolong uh, your life when living with the virus, and it can slow the onset or prevent the onset of AIDS in some patients, but it's it's just highly uh, variable, right? It's really hard to predict how well you're going to respond and for how long you might respond. Right. And to that end, and I feel like this is something that is not just relevant to HIV and AIDS, but the paradigm of taking a disease that was considered, you know, a a death sentence Mm -hmm. um, and turning it into a chronic treatable illness, right, is something that's becoming more and more popular. You don't have to totally get rid of a disease Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, make sure that your life is not ruined by it. But if doctors can take that disease and turn it into a thing that's not going to kill you, then yeah. that's a win. It's absolutely a win. And the the challenge with, as you said, you know, chronic is definitely the key word there because what will happen is, uh, and, and this actually happens early in HIV infection, but it can also happen during treatment when you're suppressing the replication of that virus. Um, the overall kind of viral load, right? Like the amount of virus that is measurable uh, in your body goes down, but the virus can basically hide in what are called latent reservoirs. And so these are sort of, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. I mean, it, it, it's physically undetectable. It's kind of lying in wait in, usually it's like in your lymph nodes or other kind of areas of the immune system. And it can just kind of hang out there for, sometimes it could be months, right? Where it's just sort of not doing anything. And then it could sort of flare up. Even if you had stopped the treatment, maybe it sort of stays suppressed. And it can kind of just come right back. Or you suppress the virus again, you get it down to an undetectable level. doesn't mean that it's gone, though. It's still there. It's just you're kind of keeping it, you know, under control is kind of how I think about it. So in those latent reservoirs, again, that's relevant for plenty of other types of viral infections. 
Without a doubt, absolutely. Um, I, I think even to maybe put a more extreme spin on this, if a person is infected with HIV, I think that latent stage can be not just days or months, it's years. It can be up yeah. to a decade. Yeah, it could be a really long time. And again, the cells that it infects are the very ones that are supposed to be involved in identifying those types of things. So it, it just sort of you know, renders the immune system inactive or ineffective from the inside. So we've kind of talked about what HIV is, a little bit of how it works, talked about some important resistance mechanisms. I think we should go back to talking about the Berlin patient. Does that sound good? That's a swell idea. So we mentioned before that the first Berlin patient uh, still remains anonymous. So we're mostly going to be focusing on Timothy Ray Brown. Actually, we should talk a little bit about the first patient. So the first patient, from what I could tell, uh, they received very early intervention for the disease. So my impression is it wasn't sort of full-blown like HIV infection uh, in terms of how it was impacting their health. Um, and they received that ART, that antiretroviral therapy, and a hydroxyurea uh, treatment after that acute infection. And Which is an anti-cancer drug. Yeah. Right. It was not, at least at the time, right. it was not approved by the FDA as an anti-HIV. Yeah, I couldn't figure out how or why they specifically decided to use it, but I saw that they did. And then I saw that apparently the patient, that initial Berlin patient, chose to discontinue their treatment kind of shortly thereafter. Maybe they just said, all right, I'm done. Maybe they were having side effects from some of the treatment. I'm not sure. Uh, and then the patient was sort of deemed functionally cured. So I think the theory with that first patient is that they intervened quickly enough that they may have been able to actually promote some HIV-specific cytotoxic T-cell-mediated control. So they were able to kind of preserve that CD4-positive um, you know, T-cell population, if you will, that HIV tends to render useless. They were able to get in there quickly enough without needing to break too much of how the immune system works. To, to do so. That was kind of my impression. Yeah, I think from the New England Journal of Medicine, um, I guess, update on that patient, uh, they also mentioned, and they were really trying to drive home this point because they didn't have a great explanation for why uh, the, the patient was doing so well, especially yeah. because, you know, at, after the, you know, the second Berlin patient has such a definitive answer. Um, the New England Journal article was sort of talking about uh, this HLA type, the human leukocyte antigen, mm -hmm. it was a B57, which apparently is fairly well associated with some amount of HIV control. Okay. Um, and this patient uh, did have uh, HLA B57, so maybe somehow that played a role. So no they one may seems have been, they may have been, you know, fortunate enough that they not only caught the infection early, but that they were maybe less likely to respond as severely to it. And maybe that played a role. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so then that's the first one. The second Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown. Do you want to start talking about him? Or do you sure. want me to go through the, uh, the actual article, like the seminal paper on what was published about his case report? I'll, I'll start with a little, little summary. So he was uh, diagnosed with HIV in 1995. And he started ART. Uh, the ART was pretty successful, as I understand it, in suppressing the HIV in his system. And again, talk about making a, you know, a potential death sentence, a, a chronic like lifelong condition. Seemed like it was going well. 
But then he unfortunately uh, developed acute myeloid leukemia, AML, in uh, 2006, which is a type of cancer. And I think his history with HIV is believed to be at least partially related to that development of AML. And just to, this will play an important role. Yeah. AML is a type of blood cancer. Yes, absolutely. No, thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. It is a type of, it's a cancer of the myeloid cells, uh, which originate in the bone marrow. And that involves, again, like all cancers, rapid growth of those abnormal cells. AML, you know, like most cancers, there's a variety of, I think, different patient outcomes. But in general, it can be regarded as being pretty aggressive and very difficult to treat. And there's a number of different risk factors that could trigger it. Um, And in Timothy's case, again, it just made a challenging situation even more difficult, right? I think that's a pretty, uh, kind of an understatement, I think, in his case. So I guess we should talk a little bit about his approach. I don't know if you have any more on kind of his lead up to, to his treatment. I, I think the only additional fact that I would add is that at 40 years old, right, with a newly diagnosed uh, AML, he was seen by these physicians for the AML, not for the HIV. The yeah. goal here was to make sure that the AML did not kill him. That was the right. That goal. was the pressing concern. Right. No, that's a really good point. So the approach to treating the AML, and I think a, fair to say a common approach to treating many different manifestations of AML, is to perform a bone marrow transplant, because you know that AML is related to abnormal cell growth that affects bone marrow. The idea is, you know, if you can kind of wipe away the bad bone marrow and insert some good bone marrow that is non-cancerous. You're, you're kind of fixing the source, right? It's sort of like if you had a stream of water and it was polluted, you, you could filter and process the water downstream, but you're never going to actually clean up that river or that stream. You got to go actually fix the source. And if you can stop whatever's polluting the, you know, the river or the body of water, in theory, it'll kind of clean up in time on its own. So one, one of the better analogies I've heard you give. Oh, thank you. I was thinking about that on the drive <laughs> over here. So that's kind of what they wanted to do, but they decided to get a little creative with how they went about doing it. Do you want to talk a bit about how they selected the donor for his bone marrow? So from the initial report, they had isolated, uh, they, the, the uh, doctors here, had isolated genomic DNA from 62 of 80 potential HLA identical stem cell donors. And all of these donors were registered at the German Bone Marrow Donor Center. Um, and all of these patients were sequenced in the CCRC5 region. Right, not CCRC, just CCR5. And just to jump in really quickly as a side note, finding a you know matching donor, I think a lot of people are kind of aware of this, but it's worth mentioning, really important for any kind of transplantation, organ transplant, bone marrow transplant, because the last thing you want is for your body to think that the donated organ or bone marrow is foreign and to attack it. That's how you get graft versus host disease. It's an extremely challenging and potentially painful situation to be in, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a, a really good point. Um, so after, and typically the way that matches are done are by blood type, by HLA type, it, it gets a little bit more sophisticated than that. You don't just want to be, you know, O negative and say, give me your lung. Um, doesn't quite work like that. But anyway, so there were 62 patients that were actually sequenced. One of these patients, one of these potential donors, happened to be 
homozygous for the CCR5 Delta 32 deletion. So with that patient, um, the doctors performed an allogeneic stem cell transplant, right? With those um, CD34 peripheral blood stem cells mm-hmm. from that HLA identical donor with the CCR5 mutation. Um, that patient had been screened for homozygosity. Um, we know what that pa- what the donor's genome looks like. So obviously, after informed consent and all of the you know the the legal nonsense that has to happen, the patient was eventually put on cyclosporin, which is really to try and combat any potential um, graft versus host. Um, and HART was then administered again, uh, sort of the, the, the day before the procedure, and engraftment was achieved 13 days after the procedure. That is what you're looking for. You're looking for this uh, kind of chimerism that shows that um, the 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 transplant actually took. You didn't just put it in the bone marrow and it's going to totally dissipate. You want your body to actually create a, a chimera where it sort of jointly is creating your old blood cells and these new blood cells from the donor. Right. It needs to establish kind of a an equilibrium, which is going to be a little different in each patient, but you don't you don't get or want 100% chimerism, right? Like you, you need to ground it kind of in what's truly native to his body. What One thing I was going to ask is because of the uh, retroviral therapy he was being given at that time, was he already relatively immune suppressed? Because to do a bone marrow transplant or really any transplant, and this is part of what you're saying about avoiding that graft versus host disease, you basically need to blast his bone marrow, right? And kind of make room for the new bone marrow to come in. And doing so puts you at risk of like, you know, you're at risk of infection because your immune system is tanked, basically. Right. So I, I, I might have skipped over this before, but way early on in the, in the initial treatment of his AML, um, his course of treatment consisted of two courses of induction chemo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one course of consolidation chemo. And during the first induction course, he had a severe liver toxicity and kidney failure. So oh, not wow. good. But yeah. that's, I mean, for an already immuno, or well, to be fair, he wasn't immunocompromised when he started right. chemo, but chemo will absolutely wipe out your white blood cell count. Yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Um, so that, the, after the chemo, um, be, because of all of these complications, they discontinued HART, um, which then led to this rebound of his viral count numbers, which were previously under control. Right. So now that they see um, HIV numbers are ticking up, 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 they resume HART. Um, so as soon as they actually start giving this uh, retroviral therapy back, mm-hmm. um, they're able to re- um, sort of retrieve this uh, steady state. And then after three months, the HIV-1 RNA levels were back down to being totally undetectable. But that was all before the actual transplant. Right. And he actually got two transplants from the donor. He did, because the first one, um, I don't want to say didn't take. It didn't take as well as they had hoped, I guess. Um, Is that common to do multiple? Very, yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and so what the authors had noticed except for the presence of a grade one graft versus host disease of the skin, which was simply treated by adjusting the cyclosporin dose 
Um, there were no real infections or toxic effects uh, other than, you know, these stupid little grade one effects mm-hmm. during the first whole year of follow-up. But then AML relapsed after 332 days. So he made it almost a year um, after the transplant and the chimerism sort of decreased down to 15%. Um, so patient underwent reinduction therapy um, and then on day 391 got his second transplant. Yeah, and then, you know, after that second transplant, he was responding. Uh, well, the AML was, I think, you know, complete remission. To be in remission, yep. exactly. And then he was eventually able to stop taking his retroviral therapy. And the levels of HIV in his system after, I think it was just three months after that second, uh, or after he stopped taking the therapy, were considered to be clinically undetectable. And beyond that, his CD4 positive T cell count actually increased quite a bit, which signaled that rebound of his suppressed immune system. So the level of chimerism is better. You've got this donor that we know is uh, basically immune to HIV infection, right? Because they were homozygous for that um, that deleted CCR5 allele, um, or not fully deleted, that's kind of truncated, I guess I should say. And now they are in the mix with his immune cells, and they are present enough that because they were able to suppress the viral load enough, they could kind of keep a lid on things. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the virus was truly absent from his system, right? I mean, it was probably still hiding out somewhere, but it was you know, kind of couldn't show its face in public, basically, for risk of being attacked, or at the very least, unable to really do anything for most of the immune cells it encountered. Is that... That yeah, fair? and and for the sort of remainder of his life, he he was tested for HIV sort of intermittently, yeah. and he remained undetectable until he unfortunately his AML uh, sort of recurred in you know, early 2019, yeah. um, and he sort of came out as in in September of 2020 as revealing himself to be terminally ill, and he later died uh, September 29th, 2020. Uh, at 54, but I would say yeah. not of HIV or, or any AIDS. of its complications. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it, again, speaks to, uh, well, talk about chronic conditions. It speaks to the challenge of curing, uh, especially AML. It's really, really difficult to treat. The, um, But I think, yeah, if there if there is some positive from that, it's that the the transplant they did worked for you know more than one thing that they were kind of hoping it would it would do right and as you said the primary treatment there was the aml doing that bone marrow transplant but if they could manage to do something about the hiv i mean that was seen as we're going to be in there anyway we might as well give it a shot and thinking about well did you have anything else to say about the berlin patient not about the berlin patient i was simply going to say just to remember back to the London patient, the 2019 patient, right. he was actually being treated for a Hodgkin's lymphoma mm-hmm. in which a bone marrow transplant is part of the treatment regimen. Right. Um, and they specifically selected a CCR, uh, uh, CCR5 Delta 32 um, donor, a, a homozygous donor to be the, uh, right. to, to be his donor for that transplant. Right. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to why it's still, you know, because some people might hear about the first person, you know, in the world, or I guess technically the second person in the world was cured of HIV. So you might be thinking, like, well, why isn't everyone 
You know, why aren't we just giving everyone that treatment? You know, the answer is there is absolutely no uh, justifiable reason to give someone a bone marrow transplant just for the hope that it will cure their HIV, right? The, the risk is far outweighing the reward here, given that for a lot of patients, antiretroviral therapy is pretty effective at you know, improving quality of life. And, and the risk is just too great that you, you would never, almost never get that justified, right? At least that's Right, yeah, and this, back in 2008 when uh, George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, I'm sorry, um, awarded Fauci the Presidential Medal of Freedom. What did he award it for? PEPFAR, which was the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which effectively outlined Fauci's plan for globally treating HIV and AIDS as a chronic disease mm -hmm. that with certain retrovirals, HIRT uh, therapies... Uh, you, you can live with. And nowadays, and especially compared to the AIDS epidemic, nowadays, people actually rarely die of AIDS complications. Yeah. And some of that is not just the actual treatment, like the clinical uh, opportunities, but it's, you know, there's better public health education. I think people are more aware of, you know, safety and, and personal health safety and that sort of thing. But you're right. It's um, it's kind of interesting. I think we've talked about gene editing a couple of times. It's going to be really interesting in the next couple of decades, not just for things like HIV, but for plenty of other conditions and inherited dis you know, uh, diseases and things like that. I, could you go in there? And we know this deletion works. Or having this deletion works to prevent HIV infection. We know like exactly what it is and these gene editing like CRISPR systems can be pretty specific so it's not hard to imagine that there could be a world where that's a, a reasonable option now whether it becomes uh accessible whether it's justifiable in every situation i think there's plenty of debate left to happen around the that because it opens up a whole different question around like ethics and designer babies and like well and that's a, that's a I, whole different road we to, could go to down, me but, the, yeah. those are the two roads right are, are we talking about uh you know acquired diseases right. and illnesses that would require a, a very different kind of gene editing intervention right as opposed to you know your designer baby situation where you know in utero or right. as you're selecting embryos it's a lot easier to manipulate the dna um, at, at that stage rather yeah. than in a fully fledged adult that is you know, obviously looking at this because he's he or she is ill with something right so already there are problems there's so many fewer copies you have to change when it's that's a, that's also true well yeah and you're right it's like it's not it's not that much cleaner necessarily if you were to edit and try to reinsert some sort of stem cells or something like that and hope uh, again like you're almost hoping that they take like you're kind of just hoping that they become dominant uh so it's not perfect and it's possible but i, I don't know i regardless i thought this was a really interesting case study um it you know says a lot about again sort of the creativity or boldness of of his doctors to say like let's let's get the most of this if we're going to be going in there and let's see what we can do. I, I mean, to me, that's good care, I guess, to to really think about him as a patient comprehensively and not just about 
the one thing that they were in there to kind of do. So I thought it was really interesting. Um, and again, he's he was very active, I think, and present and willing to engage about his treatment and his his life and his quality of life. So definitely encourage people to go search his name on, on YouTube. You'll find some interviews and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about his story. Me too. Um, I, I think he can probably tell his story better than we can. But uh, yeah, it, it was certainly interesting to learn about, especially a topic that I had some fairly uh, rudimentary understanding of. Yeah. Um, but no, I was glad you were able to explain some of these things to me. And vice versa. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. I hope uh, everyone was able to learn something about the Berlin patient. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>